0: Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of advisoryanalyst.com. My co-host is Adam Butler of Resolve Asset Management Global. Our special guest is Michael Green, Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management. Michael is one of those rare individuals, an intellectual powerhouse, a renowned expert on the intersection of economics, markets, regulation, and politics. Michael has been a student of markets and market structure for nearly 30 years. His controversial proprietary research, for which he has become well-known, examines potential impacts of the market-wide shift from actively managed portfolios and investment funds to systematic passive investment strategies. Michael joined Simplify in April of this year after serving as chief strategist and portfolio manager for Logica Capital Advisors, LLC. Prior to Logica, Michael managed macro strategies at Thiel Macro, LLC, an investment firm that manages the personal capital of Peter Thiel. And prior to Thiel, Michael founded Ice Farm Capital, discretionary global macro hedge fund seeded by Soros Fund Management. From 2006 to 2014, Michael founded and managed the New York office of Canyon Capital Advisors, a $23 billion multi-strategy hedge fund based in Los Angeles, California, where he established their global macro strategies, managing in excess of $5 billion of exposure across equity, credit, FX, commodity, and derivatives markets.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice.
0: Mike, welcome to the show. It's really great to have you.
2: Thank you. That was a very long introduction. Like when you were <laughs> saying Mike is unique. I thought like, you were saying he's the only guy against Bitcoin. But anyway, I don't know. <laughs> Bitcoin—that's the magic word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be pleasure to be back with you guys.
1: I know we're the same age, Mike. So your bio makes me feel old, man
2: you know no they, it starts to get very long and uh, <laughs> when you when you look back on it there's there's a bunch of stuff i still want to do but yeah uh, but but that list is getting shorter so yeah you, but it's
1: a good one it's a lot off absolutely
2: it, it, it is it is a good one <laughs> I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to the next uh, the, the the next decade and a half before i paid off into the sunset
1: <laughs> one of the theses that um you are most well known for Uh, is this, I guess, what Gabay and Bouchot in a more recent paper have have recently characterized as the inelastic market hypothesis. And so I'd love for you to introduce our Canadian audience to this thesis and then maybe describe how you see or some of the ways that you see this potentially playing out over the next five to 10 years.
2: Sure. Um, so Gabay and Koyin introduced the term, the uh, the inefficient or the inelastic market hypothesis. Um, Bouchon has expanded on, and I actually need to read his paper. I've not read his yet. Um, and also the work of Valentin Haddad at UCLA is worth bringing into this discussion, right? Um, uh, Haddad effectively so so Gabay and Khoijin identified this dynamic of inelasticity and just to very clearly articulate what that means inelasticity is the market's, um, uh, change in price for a change in supplier demand, right? So if supply increases a little bit, prices fall a lot, that's a highly elastic good, right? Um, I'm sorry, highly inelastic mm-hmm. good in terms of, of the demand function, right? So perfect example of that would be oil in May of 2020. There was no price. You could get it low enough to get storage facilities to speculate on it, right? So ultimately it had to go negative to clear. Um, what Gabi and Quagen have done is, is that they have parameterized the behavior of markets on the introduction of a new dollar, right? So when a dollar flows into the market, what they are highlighting is how much does the aggregate value of the stock market, because that's where they're focused, how much does the aggregate value in the stock market change? And their analysis is is that for every dollar that comes in, it goes up by about five dollars. Um, Valentin Had- Had- uh, Haddad, I believe it is, um, has looked at the trend in that and identifies that there is a character- that there's a characteristic around passive players that they are dramatically less elastic than active players. And this is the work that you've seen me present. I am obviously not an academic. I would fail as an academic, mostly because i was bored out of my mind, but the, the underlying character of what I've identified is, is that there are very different, um, you know, marginal response functions from a passive player versus an active player, an active discretionary player. My research was done in a different way than what. Bay equation did, or what Haddad has done, where they have effectively built a, um, a matrix of the behavior of holders in response to either a change in price or a flow, right? And so they're looking at empirical data and extracting from that a fundamental signal, right? right? I approached it from a totally different standpoint. I surveyed managers. And I asked them the very simple question, how do you respond to valuation changes in your allocation of the marginal dollar? And then, um, figured out intuitively the rules by which passive players work, which again, Valentin Haddad has, has validated this This is one of the nice things about the academic papers that are not coming out is that they largely validate the work that I've done. Um. And so the the point that I was making is, is as you move from the relatively elastic discretionary managers to the highly inelastic passive managers, you're going to change the character of the market. Right now, what that ultimately means is when I surveyed active managers and I asked them the question, how do you respond to changes in valuation? They became less willing to buy, more willing to sell as valuations rose, right? And interestingly enough, the intersection of those two, when I surveyed their responses and constructed effectively the best fit polynomial lines, right, the intersection of buy, marginal buying and selling activity, they crossed at 50%, right? So 50% propensity to buy, 50% propensity to sell at exactly the market's historical valuation average. Right. And this then fed into the next layer of analysis, which is when I programmed agents, right? So, you know, bots effectively, when I program bots with the characteristic of those demand and supply curves, if you introduce money into the market, valuations rise, if you re- remove money from the market, valuations fall, right. But because they intersect at almost exactly that 50, 50, it's a mean reverting phenomenon, money goes in. Right? Eventually valuations rise, players become less willing to deploy capital, valuations begin to retreat and the cycle begins itself, right? So you end up with a stable set. That's the
1: dynamic when the market mm. is dominated by active investors.
2: Right, yep. right? But the minute you start introducing passive players who operate under a very different rubric, right? The simplest way of thinking about passive is, did you give me cash? If so, then buy yep. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell. Right. Those are the very basic rules of passive. Um, when you introduce those players and you grow their market share, it has the perverse effect of raising the valuations in the market, right? Because each incremental dollar that is coming in is willing to pay an unlimited amount effectively for something. Yeah. Right. And so that was what my work led to. It's broadly being supported by the work of the academics that is coming out. And the unfortunate conclusion is if this continues, we end up with a market that becomes increasingly volatile and increasingly disassociated from what we traditionally think of, of as fundamentals. Um, that unfortunately then sets up the conditions where if money ever tries to come out, then mm-hmm. negatively the next clearing price is almost unimaginably lower than the current price right that's what a crash is right it crashes suddenly people discovering that the clearing price for the next trade is 20 30 40 50 percent below and the really thing the thing that really stresses me out right and you know i i want to emphasize for people that you know there's a, a famous expression from bernard baruch the bearish case always sounds more intelligent right The perverse dynamic of my work is, is that it explains why valuations are rising, why markets appear so robust, why things are so good in the presence of weak fundamentals, because the only thing that matters is that passive is gaining, right? Once passive actually experiences outflows, the risk is that my work says the markets crash in a manner that we've never imagined before, right? That we're talking 90% down sort of stuff right? Markets that don't open. Uh, The very specific example I would point to is the XIB, right? Where it was a purely mechanical system. It was dominated by passive. Passive had risen to about 70% of the market. And suddenly you discovered that once a passive player had to do something involving a significant outflow, all hell broke loose. Right, right. And, um, And I don't see a way around that right now.
1: So I want to make sure we explore the mechanics of how this works um, yep. to a sufficient extent, so that people at least have an intuitive grasp of what is going on. Right. So, um, an example that helped me was to sort of think of um, one of the larger stocks in the S and P. Um, let's say it represents three percent of the index. So an index investor deploys capital into the index. Uh, Let's say they deploy a hundred dollars into the index, $3 of that needs to immediately be deployed into this one stock because it represents 3% of the index.
2: Let's try to make it even easier. And actually let's call that stock, Apple, and let's make it 5%. So the math is so great. Um, so, yeah. so when money flows into Vanguard, right, every dollar that goes into Vanguard has to buy $5 worth of Apple, or, or every $100 that goes into Vanguard right. has to buy $5 worth of Apple, okay? Now, the reason why Gabay and Koijin's work around the inelastic hypothesis and the labeling of the inelastic hypothesis is so important is because it tells you that when that money flows in, The markets are not nearly perfectly elastic, which is the assumption behind the efficient market hypothesis, right? That any one individual change is going to be very small in terms of its impact, right? And so under the EMH, efficient market hypothesis framework, markets represent the cumulative transactions of millions of individual players who are effectively fighting over information content, right? And that's how prices are determined. In an environment in which Vanguard accounts for up to 50 to 60% of the marginal flow that's coming into the market, which is what they Mm. do now, right? So each dollar that comes into the market, Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, et cetera, the true passive players represent more than a hundred percent of the net flows. Wow. Right. (laughs) So when you actually have that condition, you need to think about how are they behaving? How are, what are they doing? And so every dollar that comes in has to buy $5 worth of apples. There's two separate issues that you face around that. One is, 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 is the ratio of market cap, is that the right way to think about liquidity within a market? And the answer is absolutely not. Because the way that markets are run is that market makers have to put up capital to facilitate order flow, right? Creating an order book. That order book doesn't scale with market cap because it would require Citadel or Susquehanna to put 200 times as much money into Apple as they do into a stock that has a $10 billion market cap, right? Ironically, that $10 billion market cap company is going to have a wider bid ask spread, right? It's going to trade not one one 100th as much as Apple, right? But more like one tenth or one fiftieth as much as Apple, right? So it's actually much more profitable to allocate capital to that smaller business, that smaller company, right? From a market making operation standpoint. And so Apple perversely has less liquidity relative to its demand under that framework than the smaller stock, right? There's another feature associated with it, which is that when you start to think about this dynamic of share gain, As Apple goes up in price, right? It's being pushed up by this underlying flow. The discretionary managers are more willing to sell it because they see that as representing reduced prospects of Apple going forward, unless they're just a crazy momentum player. Who's like, oh, the rising price tells me that the prospects are going to improve. And therefore I should increase my valuation. Right. And perversely, because that person, that crazy person who thinks that the price is going up and I'm not actually labeling them as crazy. It's just a, a, an alternate way of thinking about it, right? Because their performance is actually enhanced. They then attract more capital. And so the holders of Apple become increasingly price inelastic relative to the holders
1: of say Delta Airlines or XYZ Small Co. Right, and it's a feedback right? mechanism, right? So the price of Apple rises at a faster rate for the underlying dynamics that you described, it continues to represent a greater fraction of the total index. So the index begins to look more and more attractive because it's rising at an accelerated rate. But really all that's happening is that you're getting more concentrated flows into a smaller number of stocks that have a mismatch between their, their market cap and the amount of flows that it can that they can accommodate um, right. in a given session,
2: right? Correct. And, and by the way, every bank knows this, right? So, you know, like in doing my work around this, I reached out to various banks and I said, Hey, can you help me understand market, the impact of market orders? Right. And what you discover is, is that they have models of this and they don't scale proportionally to market cap, right? They scale less than proportionally. In other words, the beta of its ability to scale is less than one against the market cap feature, Mm -hmm. right? We know this. We know that the models are untrue, right? And when it becomes a dominant feature, the models that were wrong, but useful now become harmful. Mm -hmm. So, um, Mike, what causes the, uh, what type of an event would precipitate the reversal? So there's two separate components to it, right? So a big chunk of the underlying flow dynamic is simply a function of relative penetration. So if I, if I think about the statistics that say, make life simple, passive is 50% of the market, right? It's actually about 44, 45% as of today. And people will point to Vanguard, BlackRock, et cetera. And they're like, oh, that can't possibly be the case because they only represent 25% of the market. What you're forgetting is, is that passive is far more penetrated in the institutional space. I actually strongly encourage anyone who really wants to geek out on this to read Robin Wigglesworth's latest book. Uh, trillions it talks about the history of passive and what you will realize is is that retail was a late comer to the passive indexing yeah. dynamics right they were much more passively penetrated on the institutional side because the 401k um, plans and well and so the, the 401k plans are that's a really good example right because again regulatory changes have changed the structure of the market yeah. so if i look at 401ks for those under the age of 40 or I look at the marginal dollar going into a 401k, about 85% of that is now passive and in the form of a target date fund. Yeah. Actually, possibly more than 85% of it is passive. And it's a it's a juggernaut, isn't it? I mean it's it's
0: it's every two weeks, every month, money just keeps flowing at- in from from DC.
2: Right? Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. It's it is an absolute juggernaut. And again, though, remember that what's happening is that about 70% of the assets are held by those over the age of 65. Their penetration is only about 20% passive. So when they are taking money out of the market, they're firing active managers. Yeah. And they're, they often, if they have surplus, are hiring passive managers because it's the new thing that they should be doing, right? The younger generation that's coming in is almost exclusively passive. Their market share is 90 to 95% passive. And as they mature into having more and more wealth, they have no reason to change. Right. Because among other things, we've told them that passive outperforms yeah. and there's empirical evidence to support that state. Right. Um, I, I think it's screwy in terms of the empirical evidence, but that's fine. Uh, so we, we have this system that does not really go into reverse until you get enough old people that have passive vehicles. And then you run into a very interesting problem, which is that wealth is a function of the asset and the withdrawals are a function of well, right? So in 401ks, for example, or in spending intentions, typically people are going to withdraw a percentage of the value, but contributions scale linearly with incomes, right? Right. So unless you increase the proportion and we've done all this, right? But unless you're changing and screwing around the contribution amounts, et cetera, it just grows with income. Right? So you have this perverse effect of markets becoming more inelastic. So each dollar that goes in drives their prices higher and higher and higher. Again, to go back to Valentin Padot's work, he estimates that the increase in the inelasticity of the market for the penetration of passive is about 50%. Um, his official headline is about 15%, but that's because he's trying to present as conservative a number as he possibly can. We actually read the paper. It's closer to 50. Um. And so you, you have this dynamic of markets going higher and higher and higher as money flows into passive. And then that whole thing just breaks the minute you try to take money out of that. Right. 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 So what do you, when we have net selling of passive is when this ultimately breaks and, it, and it's hard to know exactly when that occurs so, because there's regulatory changes, there's demographic features to it, et cetera. So I, I have a thought, which is that, you know, we've seen,
0: you know, like if you have a million dollars, let's say you're a retiree, you've got a million dollars. Just to make it the, the math easy, at a two and a half percent yield uh, of income from your assets, you can expect twenty five thousand dollars, right? Nope. I mean, I had this discussion a couple a week and a half ago, and so a million dollars isn't what it used to be. Um, at one and a half percent, if you just take the you know one or one point six percent, whatever the ten year is at. That's sixteen grand. So, so if your if your retirement nest egg once produced twenty five thousand dollars a year, on that you know on past capital market assumption, and then today it produces half of that, then you have to withdraw more in order to meet that original income target of twenty five thousand. So if you you were getting 25, if you were expecting to get 25 or $30,000 in the past, and now you can only expect to get $15,000 out of that million, then you got to take an additional 10 to 15,000 more in order to supplement your income, right? Or your nest egg has to be twice the size. But, but, right. so doesn't and that, it, doesn't that place, doesn't that the fact that yields are at these historical lows? make it even more challenging based on the i'm just going on the basis of what you were just explaining which makes a huge amount no, of sense no, but, no. but that means you need to take even more from your pool in order to supplement your lifestyle as a retiree
2: unfortunately perversely it also though drives higher allocation to equities yeah. as you get older right and so so again you know if, if i go back and i look at that survey that right. i did right the big loser was bonds at 4%, (laughs) contrary to me says there's a problem there, Yeah, right? Because what people are failing to consider is the fact that the 1.6% in nominal terms could end up being a home run, right? (laughs) If everybody suddenly (laughs) decides, you know what? Um, I've now got enough. My assets have risen from 1 million to 2 million and. The yield is one point six percent, so I now get thirty-two thousand as compared to the twenty-five thousand. My incentive structure becomes shit. Switch all that to bonds. Yeah, it wouldn't take right right, right right, now. Right, switch it to something like mainly. Yeah, right. The the feedback associated with that is more complicated, right? The, The you know the higher asset price leads people to say, "Oh my God, it's inflation!" Therefore, I may need more, right? Um, it could lead to any number of, of components, but the other thing that people tend to forget is that you, you don't just have to spend your dividend. You're supposed to pay down the principal. You're not supposed to end up, you know, w- w- what's the, uh, the adage, you can't take it with you. Right. You know, like I know we're all panicked for our children and I know we all want to leave as much as we possibly can, but there is a point at which you have to say, okay, well, if I've got a 30 year retirement. I can have $2 million and spend zero of it and live off of the interest, or I can start saying, okay, I'm going to amortize that 2 million over 30 years. And guess what? That works out to $60,000 a
0: year. So you, yeah. So there's also besides switching away from equities to bonds and liquidating equities, you're also potentially liquidating equities in return for annuities, which, which have a much better much
2: better payout rate than today's income products right. yeah. Precisely because they consume the principal, yeah. right? Which we tend not to, to, to recognize as we think about bonds. The really mm-hmm. core issue is, is that it, you know, we treat these products as if they are substitutes, right? So we say, well, how much of your portfolio should you have in bonds? How much should you have in equities? Yeah. The reason that's an issue is just because it fails to ignore the payout characteristics, right? So those are not, equivalent instruments unless you include options, All right? So the really important thing to remember about equities is that the minute you buy the equity, right, the point of maximum certainty has already been passed, All right? You know exactly what you paid for it. You have no idea what it's worth in the next period and even less in the next period after that, the period after that, et cetera. The cone of possibility expands over time and hit its point hits its point of maximum at the point where you're planning on selling it. Bonds do the exact opposite, right? The point of maximum certainty on a riskless bond, a government bond, is actually at maturity. It's effectively an American football shape, right? Hopefully you've got a positive interest rate and so it's rising over time, right? But those payoff functions can't be reconciled. They're not substitute assets. And so effectively what you have going on right now is people taking on massively increased end of life risk in exchange for the perception that their wealth is expanding in a greater fool dynamic, Right. I'm going to sell it for bonds at some yeah. point, but just not yet. Right. Lord, make me silver, but not today. <laughs> Chaste. I think,
1: um, wow. So wh- how do you think, first of all, what probability do you ascribe to, um, the proposed mark to market capital gains tax, um, that Yellen has been, uh, Dis- discussing or at least, you know, floating in the media the last few days. And would that maybe be a catalyst for a reversal um, of flows out of equities that might trigger some of these um, exodus? It's possible, but
2: um, I guess the way I would describe it is is that you're handicapping now two things, right? The event of that legislation passing, and then the reaction function associated with it. And the thing that worries me most is not so much um, do people sell equities, because people sell equities every single day. It becomes a question of who sells equities, right? And what form do they sell those equities in? And so if you see price insensitive selling, in other words, redemptions coming out of actively managed funds, then I get very concerned.
1: Well, past, right? past, but, I guess, or the, uh,
2: yeah, that's, I mean, that's honestly all I care yeah. about, right? I mean, it, in all seriousness, you can change the, you can, you can change the day-to-day path and you see this particularly within sectors, right? Where the active management sector you know, decides, gets it in its head that a signal has come that says inflation is coming, and therefore they all rush to inflation-sensitive sectors, right, which on the margin raises the value of those versus the stuff that they were selling. They were selling the high-quality um, work-from-home stocks and buying the energy stocks, etc., because of the, the perceived inflationary future Right? That motion is absolutely going to influence price behavior, and we saw that in the most incredible anti-momentum rally we've ever seen in history, basically beginning with the Joe Biden election, Mm -hmm. right? Why did that happen? The uncertainty around the election led people to reduce their allocations, right? When they reallocated, they went to try to buy and discovered, hey, guess what? The energy stocks are already owned by Vanguard, BlackRock, and, and State Street. And if I try to buy it from them, there's no way to get them to sell it to me. So the people I'm trying to buy from are also all people who have come to this wonderful conclusion that inflation is just around the corner. Right. And therefore they're unwilling to sell. In other words, the inelasticity of that sector rose dramatically. Right. So like, that sort of behavior that we're seeing that sort of stuff happen to me is, is very clearly tied to my underlying piece. I had been, <clears throat> by the way, to use the academic paper, um, uh, how Jang at Michigan state came out with a piece, um, called. Uh, valuated indices, not meaning value in that context, but market value. Um, that is a must read for understanding that, right? So effectively Fama French works in reverse until the active managers redeploy, and then it, you know,
0: becomes turbocharged. I was listening to. Mike, I was listening to your conversation with Grant Williams from last summer, and um, you you talked about the trades on the uh, A shares in China that were yeah. happening out of the Singapore futures market, and no. and the consecutive days that one no transaction I think the, no, no transactions but but money was flowing in, into the markets yeah. through the futures. And what, I mean, does the same, does the, there's a similar kind of dynamic, is this, is a similar kind of situation possible where, where you have, um, you know,
2: not only possible, but probably
0: where you have the reverse happening, right. Where you have futures trades taking
2: place. We've seen it in direct. Right. I mean, I, I would highlight that's all AMC and GameStop is. Yeah. Right. Um, It's a stock that exhibits incredible inelasticity, Tesla, the exact same way. It goes into the S and P 500. Did anything fundamentally change about Tesla? No. Did the willingness of people to short Tesla evaporate? Yes. Yes. Did the willingness of people to sell their Tesla, you know, based on some fundamental belief tied to, um, you know, a higher price indicating a lower future return, like those people didn't own Tesla in the first place. Yeah. Right, so when S and P had to show up and buy seventy billion dollars worth of Tesla, guess what? Yeah. Price explodes. Yeah. yeah, with level of short interest in the history of the stock. Wow,
1: That's right, a perfect example. Yeah, awesome, awesome example. Yeah. Um, So we've we've had you for an hour, fifty minutes. Two hours. Uh, yeah, yeah. You... So <laughs> been incredibly generous as usual. Thank you so much and insights. Thanks for coming on. No, I,
2: Aaron, listen, I, I I genuinely appreciate the opportunity to talk to people in an extended framework, right? Because among other things, the problem is, is that we're all using models to approach the world. We know that we're using models, and all models are wrong. Some are useful is a very useful adage to remember, mm-hmm. right? But the model of the universe in a classic Newtonian sense very valuable for a macro dynamic of getting to the moon, but the minute you start trying to do semiconductors with Newtonian physics, it collapses, right? You can't do it. We're now at a point where I would argue that many of the simplifying assumptions that we allowed to govern the way that we manage our assets, that we manage our policy, right? We're approaching that transition, that phase transition, where it really matters that we understand the models, whether those are inflation from the 1970s whether that's the impact of passive on markets, et cetera, that creates a period of tremendous fragility and instability ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I can do is try to raise awareness of it, right? We're not, I can't out-lobby Vanguard at BlackRock. It's not going to happen, Yep. Yep. right? But what I can do is actually position people to understand what sits ahead.
1: Which you have done and continue to do very effectively and generously. So thank you. Mike, and where, where can people find you? Uh, in my basement, uh, no, uh <laughs> with your dog.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's very hard not to find me. Um, but the easiest, easiest way to find me is on Twitter at profplum99, P-R-O-F-P-L-U-M 99. Yep. It's a joke. I look like the <laughs> uh, for the princess ride. I look nothing like myself. So just, you know, accept that. I'm not going to go into the detailed explanation of it. Um. And then uh, you can also find my writings through Simplify's website and the products that I manage through Simplify at www.simplify.us. And we will be increasing the, the amount of long form, non-spoken communication that we do. So I look forward to people's feedback on that. Awesome. That's brilliant. Mike, Mike one last question.
0: Um, would you rather, so would you rather question, would you rather spend a week in the past or spend a week in the future.
2: Oh, the future, not not any question in my mind. You got um,
1: of, yeah,
2: I look. I, we are at an inflection point. We're at a point of of uncertainty in a manner that I would argue most of us have underappreciated. Um, but I tend to like. I'm very good friends with Josh Wolf of Lux Capital, right? So Josh and I, I think the unifying characteristic. Is that we both look at the world and we look at the potential of human ingenuity and innovation and say, "Man, I want to live in a world where that has been optimized and maximized, and that's always going to be the future." Awesome said. So, awesome. Thank you so much. If you you could transport me a hundred years, I'd be yes. If you could transport me a thousand years, I'd say yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Love to see it.
0: Fantastic.
1: All right, thanks again, sir.
0: Thank you so much. That was uh, Let- that was amazing.